Do you talk about it with your friends? Do you dare talk about it with your grandparents? The Sealed Section, talking everything sex for everyone. Hello Shaggers and welcome back to the last episode of the season of the Sealed Section. I can't believe that there's 21 episodes we are done for this season. If you haven't listened to the last episode, you won't know that I've decided to turn the sealed section into seasons and end it here. I will be back in probably a couple months. I'll keep you guys updated on my Instagram. So if you don't already, go follow the sealed section on Instagram and just on social media in general so you can keep up to date when we're coming back. Now, today's episode, Shaggers, we have Cam Fraser, who was absolutely amazing in this episode. Cam is a certified professional sex coach, certified sexologist, registered counsellor, and registered tantric yoga teacher. His work integrates scientifically validated, medically accurate information about sexual health with sacred sexuality teachings from the mystery traditions. As a coach, he helps men go beyond surface-level sex and into full-bodied, self-expressed, pleasure-oriented sexual experiences free of anxiety and shame. So please enjoy today's episode, Shaggers. It's all about men's sexuality, and honestly, we don't talk about it enough, and I'm so excited that I finally got to have someone come on and break down a lot of myths that are attached to a man's sexuality. So please enjoy this last episode of the season, Shaggers. Welcome to the show, Cam. I'm so excited to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Are you able to tell the Shaggers a bit about yourself and like your background and the work that you do? Yeah, I'll be concise. Um, <laughs> This is a long story, but yeah. my um, some big highlight moments for me in terms of being influential for where I am now is um, I left Australia, I left home when I was 17 years old to go and study abroad in America. I studied psychology and philosophy over in the States uh, and I went to two universities over there uh, and I was able to go over there actually on a sporting scholarship. I used to play soccer. I still play soccer, just not as not as well. I'm not 17 anymore. Yeah. Um, so my, um, my, my time over there, yeah, my first university that I went to was in this really religious university, um, in a place called Mount Vernon, Georgia. So if people are familiar with the geography of the United States, that's in like the Bible belt, the deep South, it's very conservative. Well, at the time it was very conservative and, and particularly the, um, particularly the little town that I was in was very religiously conservative. So the, there was a lot of shame and repression and guilt and stigma and taboo around, any type of sexual expression, any type of sexuality at all. Um, stereotypically, you know, you can think of like homosexuality was a sin, premarital sex was a sin. Uh, there was just a lot of a lot of guilt and shame, uh, religiously oriented guilt and shame around it. Uh, so I spent two years there and um, was really like, my eyes were opened, I suppose, to yeah. like the need for sex education, the need for people to be a bit more open and honest about sexuality and, and things like this, and particularly relationships. Um, and then I transferred to another university. Uh, this time was up in a place called Dubuque, Iowa, uh, which is right in the tri-state area of, I want to say, Illinois, Iowa, and oh, I don't know. There's another state. Yeah, I've got no idea. Yeah. But it's right, right on the Mississippi River. Uh, yeah. And it's um, 
and it's a uh, it was a Catholic university that I went to. So again, it was kind of there was that religious indoctrination, so to speak, and and a lot of those Catholic values coming through in terms of like the um, sexuality and, and sexual behavior there as well. And so that was another eye opening experience, a little bit different being in the Midwest, but um, but again, kind of really uh, really. I guess, informed the information that I wanted to share. And I, I was kind of like the, the guy who, um, you know, cause I was playing soccer and I was an Australian and I was you know, kind of well liked over there. It was, it was a very interesting time because I wanted to fit in. Um, but the way that I had to fit in was in these like locker room style kind of college athlete that really macho masculine, stereotypical toxic masculinity way of kind of uh, approaching emotions and sexuality and interacting with women and things like that. And so I was, um, you know, I was kind of desperate to fit in because I was, I was hanging out with these, um, these young men, uh, but it had a lot of internal conflict at the time. And I was in quite a bad mental health space. Um, I was relying on alcohol a lot. I was kind of living up to that Australian larrikin kind of drinking culture that we have here in Australia. And, really perpetuating that. Um, so I was relying a lot on alcohol, uh, and yeah, it was just in a pretty unhealthy space. And, and that kind of manifested as a lot of anxiousness, a lot of tension in my body. Um, and then sexually it manifested as like, uh, erectile dysfunction, er- like alcohol induced erectile dysfunction as well. Uh, premature ejaculation, uh, just issues connecting and being intimate with the people that I was being sexual with. Uh, because it was, I was just inauthentic. I was, just wasn't being myself. I was try, I was wearing this mask of like who I thought I had to be in order to fit in with these other guys as part of the locker room or the fraternity that I was, you know, frequent, uh, frequently visiting. Um, and so it, it wasn't until I seriously injured my back, I actually um, fractured a couple of um, vertebrae in my lower back, and I, I had to go through clinical rehabilitation, and that involved like Pilates and yoga and massage and things like this. And doing that, doing that rehabilitation, I actually slowed down for the first time in my life. My, like I released tension from my body. I actually listened to how I was feeling. I was building that bodily somatic awareness. And I, I, I kind of had this realization of like how much tension and tightness I was storing in my, particularly in my, my lower back and my pelvis and recognizing that that was connected to all this fear and anxiety and mental tension that I had this kind of, um, this disingenuousness that I, I was kind of embodying um, because I was kind of holding things on and trying to suppress feelings and trying to portray something that I wasn't, um, you know, that wasn't authentic to me. And, and so as I, as I started releasing physically tension from my body, I started noticing all these emotions to start to surface. And there was plenty of times during a Pilates class or a yoga class where I just started crying for, for kind of seemingly no reason halfway through class or this anger and rage just kind of bubbled up in me because I'd been storing it for so long and, and hadn't given myself an opportunity to release it. Uh, and so I, I took the initiative to go and see a counselor and a psychologist myself and go to, you know, go through therapy and start to learn how to process emotions and how to regulate and, and do all these um, really necessary things. And, uh, and I started, you know, by doing this, I started noticing how, um, I guess just how better the sex that I was having was like, I, I wasn't having so many dysfunctions. I was actually able to connect to the young women that I was being sexual with. Cause I was able to talk to them and, and feel comfortable with my own sexuality and ask them about their own sexuality and, and have these conversations that previously I was just like 
know that and we can kind of talk about this but like that this is what a man does in the bedroom this is what a woman does in the bedroom and um and so i was able to kind of really break free from that and and kind of stand up and uh for what i kind of believed in myself in these locker rooms as well and um and so it, it really changed the the fabric of kind of who i am as a, as a human being so i really want to emphasize that that's something i always talk about but then i had this real interest in sexuality and human behavior and psychology and philosophy and i was like all right i want to pursue this i want to study this i want to go down this avenue and see where it kind of takes me because I, I noticed like psychology was over here in one camp and then like physiotherapy and massage and body-based work was over here in this other yeah. camp and very yeah. rarely did they interact and influence one another but but they're both working towards the same ends they're both working towards like transformation right you transforming into a, a new person or a new version of yourself and so they, they both have the same end goal. And so I was really like, okay, how can I bring these two things together? Where is that intersection? Where's that gray area between the two of them? And so uh, after I graduated, I, I traveled a lot. I was very lucky, very privileged to be able to travel um, South America, Central America. Um, I went to Southeast Asia, I went to India. Uh, and it was just an opportunity, uh, I guess, for me to go on a bit of like that spiritual journey, um, that sojourn to like, just kind of learn more about other cultures and learn more about myself and bring all that information back um, into my own personal practice, I guess. And, uh, and, and then I you know, went on to study a post-grad degree uh, in, uh, in sexology and uh, as well as in counseling as well. And, um, and then I just started working uh, as a counselor, uh, particularly focusing on like relationship issues and sexuality issues. And then you know, I was going to go down the clinical sex therapy route, but found that sex coaching particularly was a bit more my style because that allowed for a broader spectrum of modalities. The kind of clinical route is just just talk therapy essentially, which is amazing and 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 um, and I'm really fascinated by it. But I had this background in yoga, in massage, in breath work, in some other modalities as well that I really wanted to utilize. So um, I went down the sex coaching route and. Uh, long story short, I suppose uh, I, I work specifically with men, uh, cisgender, heterosexual men for the most part, because that's my lived experience. That's who I, that's who I am. And that's what I can speak into with authority. Um, and, you know, the, the philosophy I have, personal philosophy I have with regards to my work, I guess there's two. Um, one is like my personal one, which is the stuff that I talk about online is the stuff that I needed to hear. 10 yeah, 15 yeah. years ago when i was a, a teenager and, and grappling with my own sexuality and masculinity and uh and so that seems to resonate with a lot of people because i think regardless of race creed socio socioeconomic status we have similar stories right we have similar ideas about what it means to quote unquote be a man and so i just try and speak into that the stuff that i needed to hear uh, and then with regards to the people that i work with like i you know i work with people that share my lived experience i don't think it's super appropriate for me personally, anyway, and maybe I don't feel comfortable with this, um, working with someone who has a vulva because I don't have a vulva. I don't know what it's like to touch my own vulva and experience uh, that type of that type of orgasm or someone who's trans because I haven't gone through a transition. Um, and so I, I just found it really um, in terms of, in terms of being showing integrity for my own practice was to was to work with people who kind of share my own lived experience that I can I can speak to them on on that level. Um, and so that's where I am today. It's kind of taken about 10 years to get there, but, uh, that's what I'm doing and, and I'm, I'm really enjoying it and it's ever evolving and I'm, I'm always learning and it's, um, yeah, it's just been a fantastic ride. Yeah, that's awesome. That's an amazing journey. And like being able to, you know, take 
your experiences and learn from them and grow from them and then help others is so awesome. Now, I really want to talk about men's sexuality and what shapes it and then how this impacts their sexual relationships in women. So you're able to delve into some of the factors that shape men's sexuality? Yeah, so there's like a um, there's a whole bunch of myths, right, around male sexuality and male sexual expression that are, I mean, they're really perpetuated by media. Like I see Hollywood yeah. movies and once I kind of like name these myths and I encourage you to go out and just watch your favorite TV show, you'll see these things pop up, these stereotypes of male sexuality pop up yeah. in, in any any TV show and any movie. Um, and this is idea that like men are always down to fuck, right? Like men always yeah. want to have sex. There's this notion that like, um, you know, the, the kind of language that we have around this, like any holes a goal or like um, uh, quantity over quality, like things like that is the mentality that a lot of not only men, but a lot of people in general have about male sexuality and men's experiences of, of sex. So, um, and, and that, that's a myth. Like there's, a, there's an amazing book by Sarah Hunter Murray called Not Always in the Mood, which, which pretty much debunks all these types of myths but that's the first thing that she talks about as well is like there are plenty of times where men don't want to have sex and they're not actually in the mood for sex and they don't want to have sex all the time and they don't have this high unwavering unyielding sex drive that it actually waxes and wanes and fluctuates because they're human beings and and just like all human beings we we aren't just constant and at our at our peak libido um and so the so that's a, that's a big myth and that, and that it's, it's important to kind of deconstruct that and and you know one of the ways to deconstruct that is like um l- like learning how to say no or um imagining if your partner like if you're a woman or or even if you're a man uh, and you've got a male partner and he says no to sex like what stories does that bring up in you if if you get like quote unquote rejected i suppose yeah. um and, and so that that can be a helpful kind of thought experiment to be like where like where are you in terms of like accepting that myth and, and accepting that societal story about male sexuality so um that's something i encourage people to do is like if your male partner said no to sex how would you react to that um, is there an expectation there that he should say yes to sex and if you do have that expectation then you've probably kind of bought into that story that men should always be down to have sex uh, similarly if you're a guy and you have never turned down sex or you've never felt like you could say no to sex then um again, kind of reflect on why that might be and whether you've kind of bought into that story. So that's a, that's a big one. And that informs a couple of other things like um, another idea is that like men are, uh, in, terms of, in terms of the sexual experience, this idea that men are supposed to be the, um, I say the aggressor here. Um, and I, I use that word kind of quite del- deliberately uh, because a lot of the times uh, it, it is ag- like aggressive and not in the, sometimes in the violent sense but not necessarily in that violent way of thinking about aggression but it's um it's kind of the, the men are the pursuers men are the active participants men are the doers right that's a very strong story around like heterosexual sex in particular uh, and the reverse side of that is that women are supposed to be the receivers or the person who is being done to or the person who is the the, the passive participant in sex so this is like really strong narrative around the roles of men and women sexually and um you know, men are the dominant ones in the bedroom the knowledgeable ones in the bedroom um again all this is it's fluff it's a myth it doesn't it's not not the case but it's a very strong story that we hold on to and we will see this 
portrayed in in movies and media um even porn as well porns and media like the person who initiates is always the the man yeah it um, is if not 99 percent of the time um and uh and so like that that's really important to deconstruct as well it's like you know um because that especially in a couple some some uh some problems can arise if that's the dynamic um and if that's the uh, if that's the dynamic that you think should happen and it doesn't happen then often a story comes up of like well something's wrong right something's wrong with me for not initiating or something's wrong with my partner because they're initiating right if a if a if a man um, thinks that he's the person who's supposed to be in charge of the bedroom and his partner then starts to speak up and has a bit of agency and starts to ask for things, then he might think, oh, something's wrong here because she's kind of taking the lead as well. Um, so, so adhering to these myths creates a lot of problems. Uh, there's a whole bunch and I, I, could, yeah. I could talk for, for hours, but um, the, the, I guess the, the core of a lot of these myths, I suppose, is like, the way we've, I guess the way we've positioned men and our sexuality in society, like we, there's a, there's a word called um, phallocentric. And the idea is like the core of sex is the penis, right? That's kind of what phallocentric yeah. means. Yeah. It's penis oriented or phallus oriented. Uh, and, and so the way that we talk about sex and sexuality in general, regardless of whether it's about men or women or, or whoever is, is it, it's oftentimes oriented on the penis and, and it's like sex doesn't count unless there's a penis in a vagina. Um, sex is over when the penis ejaculates. Uh, penis uh, it has to be erect in order for sex to happen. Like all these things are focused around what the male genitalia is or is not doing. Um, and so because we've kind of framed sex around that, the... Um, the stories that come from that is like those myths of like, okay, well, um, we've got this, we've got this culture then that, that frames male sexuality in a certain way based on like what his penis is doing essentially. And, um, an activist from the 1980s, his name was Paul Kivel. We used to talk about this man box culture. This idea that like, uh, there's an un unwritten set of rules for men to follow, uh, in order for them to fit inside this box, um, which I was kind of alluding to earlier. I was kind of wearing this mask and, and being this person yeah, who yeah. I didn't necessarily want to be, but it's kind of what I was expected to be as a man. Um, and anytime you step outside of that box or anytime you do something that doesn't adhere with those kind of unspoken guidelines, then you oftentimes get bullied and ostracized and teased and denigrated by people in general. Often it's men, but I've seen women and, and other people do this as well uh, until you find a way to get yourself back in the box. And, um, and oftentimes what you have to do to get yourself back in the box is do something that's hyper masculine. So you, you kind of lash out in, in, in rage or in violence, you know, you hit someone, right. If you're in the schoolyard is a very stereotypical schoolyard example of like, if you're getting called gay in the schoolyard, what do you do to not be called gay anymore? You, you, you hit the, the, the guy who's calling you gay, uh, and, everyone stops calling you gay. And so that's this very microcosmic example of like you were outside of the box, you get bullied, you get teased for something in order to get put back in the box and be considered a quote unquote man. Again, you do something that's hyper-masculine in order to get in there. And so that that's a, uh, an aggressive violent example, but the same thing can be with, with sex in order to be considered like back in the box again, you can do the same thing sexually and really be aggressive, hyper-masculine sexually. Um, and that really, porn style way of like pounding and 
um, just having hard, rough sex um, can be one way of making you feel like you're back in that box. So, uh, so there's a few few things. It's not like one simple thing that that says male sexuality is like this. There's a bunch of these cultural kind of traits that that all play into male sexuality and expression. Yeah. So obviously like these factors that shape men's sexuality, a lot of them obviously are for the best and can cause a lot of anxiety. Are you able to delve into the way that that anxiety can then impact their sexual function and then obviously maybe impact their sexuality if they feel shame around that? Yeah, totally. So um, like we like we were kind of saying before is if we don't follow those scripts of... Um, of like being in the man box, I suppose, to, to kind of shorten it, then um, then a lot of men feel like something's wrong with them. Like if they're not pounding away like a machine, if they're not ha- having this rock hard erection, if they don't last for four hours, you know, every time they have sex and they're not the knowledgeable, dominant, hyper-masculine guy, the stereotypical example, then then they they can feel like something's wrong with them. They feel like they're less of a man for it. And... Um, for a lot of men, our masculinity is really wrapped up in who we are as, as a human being. It's wrapped up in our identity and, and in our ego. So um, so feeling like less of a man can feel like a bit of a failure as a human being. Uh, and it can cause a lot of that, like, that anxiety around identity. So there's a lot of fear around not fulfilling that role, this, this kind of um, hyper-masculine role that we've, we've bought into, I suppose. And and so because there's that fear of like, oh God, I need to make sure I've got an erection. I need to make sure that I last this long. I need to make sure that I give her a bunch of orgasms. I need to make sure that I'm this masculine dude. Um, that becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because there's all this fear and anxiety about fulfilling that role and doing this thing and being this person. That's not conducive for a good sexual experience. It's not conducive for pleasure, right? The more anxiety you have, the more fear you have, the less pleasure you have and, and vice versa. So... So when you're in your head like that, and this is kind of the root of performance anxiety, when you're in your head and you're fearing like what's going to happen if you don't live up to this expectation that you've placed upon yourself or that your partner's placed upon you, then that fear and anxiety, like I said, becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy and you have a shitty sexual experience, right? If you're really anxious and tense, then you will probably struggle to get an erection. If you're really anxious and tense, you're probably not going to experience a lot of pleasure. You're not going to be in the moment. You're going to be thinking rather than feeling. Uh, and so this this you know becomes this kind of uh, downward spiral of like having a having a shitty experience, which reinforces those thoughts of oh god, I'm I'm you know I'm a bad lover. I'm I'm less of a man. I, you know, I, and then you know I can't do that again. And then having another shitty experience, which then kind of reinforces those thoughts, and it becomes this really downward spiral. Um, same thing with premature ejaculation. It's very much linked to anxiety uh, and tension in the body. So um, those t- the two ends of the, the spectrum or the two sides of the same coin, um, erectile dysfunction and premature ejaculation are both affected by that anxiety and fear. So um, so that's one of the ways that it can really manifest. Um, another way that it can manifest in terms of like the relational experience is, um, and I kind of alluded to this before, is like, if um, sex doesn't look a certain way, again, there can be a, a, a kind of idea popping up that this is wrong, that there's yeah. something wrong about this. Yeah. Um, so like for, like, for example, if, if uh, I know this is a story that a lot of men have, if they don't have 
penis in vagina, penile vaginal penetrative sex, then it doesn't count as sex. And like, it doesn't like, it, it was a failure. All right. That's kind of the story that pops up. So, um, and I remember, I remember in high school for me personally, um, you know, I was, I was being sexual with, with my, my girlfriend at the time, but we, we weren't having penetrative sex. We weren't having intercourse. And my mates were like, pressuring me to be like oh that doesn't count that doesn't count like when are you going to fuck her when are you going to actually have sex and 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 i was like oh and so i kind of felt this this um need to kind of fulfill that uh story of like oh i need to have sex i need to be penetrative i need to to sex needs to look this way otherwise it's a failure and 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 it doesn't count um and that's so that's a pressure that a lot of men feel uh to escalate to that point as opposed to maybe just exploring some sexy massage or just doing some sensual touch or even just like some oral sex or some digital sex or, or, or anything else, literally. Um, a lot of men feel pressured to make sex look a certain way. And then beyond that, it's like, you know, he's got to be on top or he's got to be the person in charge. Um, he can't be the submissive person in that relationship or he can't be the submissive person in that experience there's a lot of this story around like what um what sex should should look like for for a heterosexual couple and i mean that that can be extended further into like um fear about prostate stimulation and any type of anal play and any type of like anything literally anything other than just his genitals there's a lot of fear that men have um, because there's this story or this idea that like his pleasure comes from his cock and um and so that closes down any uh, opportunity to experience pleasure from like his nipples or from his face or from his ass or from his toes or, or from anywhere else on his body there's just this big fear of being of being weird or of being gay yeah. or of being yeah. um not normal if you experience pleasure from anywhere else other than just your genitals um, yeah so that's a that's another big there's actually a lot of fear there's a lot of insecurity and fear for a lot of men um, when it yeah. comes to sex do you have any tips for trying to overcome that yeah yeah so something that i i help men with when they come and work with me is like just dialing it right back into sex with yourself so before yeah. you start trying to apply anything to sex with your partner um, I talk about like solo sex and, and you know, you'll have sex more times with yourself than you will with another person in your lifetime um, on average. So um, so like building a healthy sex life with yourself it can be really important. And so I, I try to reframe masturbation to, uh, to self-pleasure when I talk to guys. And oftentimes masturbation is like this uh, stationary, sedentary, closed down, you know, furious jackhammer style jerking off like a chimpanzee in front of a computer screen um, you know, situation for a lot of guys. And and so that's not conducive for experiencing a lot of pleasure for for allowing yourself to, to you know, to experience that kind of embodied full body pleasure. Um, it's quite limiting. And so I, I share with guys like, okay, let's try and build a self-pleasure practice rather than a masturbation habit and and self-pleasure there the kind of key is in the name it's whatever you find pleasurable it's whatever you yourself find pleasurable and that might not even include genital stimulation and so i kind of give men when i work with them kind of permission right they kind of like give them this, this permission slip to go look you're allowed to explore other areas of your body you don't just have to touch your cock you can touch other areas like you know there's a, there's a wonderful practice called pleasure mapping uh which is 
you know, you essentially start at your toes and slowly work your way up to the crown of your head and just touch yourself in novel ways. Most of us have these beautiful tools on the end of our arms to elicit certain stimulations and just experiment, just lean into your curiosity and treat it as like a data collection exercise and start to just map this pleasure across your body and notice what you like, notice what you don't like. Um, and, and so take it slow, I suppose, is like the key here. Like I'm not going to advocate for someone who's never done any type of exploration before to start sticking a fist up their ass but if that's where you want to get to like it's like a baby step process to just start exploring other areas of your body outside of your cock and by doing that you give yourself this kind of chance to notice those resistances when they come up and you give yourself a chance to process them and work through them and be like oh i'm touching my chest now when i masturbate why does that feel wrong for me it feels wrong because i've had this fear of being less of a man if I like pleasure in other areas of my body or you know or that I'm going to be you know if my mates found out that they would make fun of me or whatever it is right it gives you an opportunity to just kind of slow down and process those things and and pleasure is an amazing healing modality like I don't think it's that's recognized enough when you're in that self-pleasure when you're in this like really orgasmic experience you can shed those stories they you know that that pleasure can be a helpful way of like letting go of that stuff and, and starting to embody a bit more of that, that positive blissful kind of experience rather than that negative shaming um, story that we tell ourselves. So taking your time can be really helpful. Yeah, no, that's an awesome way to think about it. I think we often don't think that the way we masturbate can reflect into how we have sex and that there's a relationship between those. I know myself, I probably would never have thought about that especially like you know work with yourself I know they often say especially for women you need to find like touch yourself before you go into sex Uh, but you don't often hear that for men but I also suppose there's that expectation that men masturbate whereas women don't there's that yeah yeah. Um, another thing that I've been hearing a lot more is a term post-nut clarity it's been coming up on my social media heap often almost in a negative light towards women there there's a video and there's this guy saying like oh he's been wanting this chick for so long finally has sex with her has this post-nut clarity and he's like oh like I'm not interested in her at all anymore is that a like a legitimate concept are you able to break that idea down yeah so um the the term post-nut clarity is is a bit of a spin on um a, a legitimate studied but maybe very understudied phenomenon um known as post-coital tristesse which is um uh, tristesse kind of is a french term that means um that means i guess it would mean distress or it would mean um confusion uh, from what i understand um and the idea is that um and you know this again this has been studied it's only been it's it's been very understudied but this idea that after an ejaculation or really after an orgasm because it's also it's um it's been found in in women as well people with vulvas um there's an experience or a phenomenon that some people have where they feel maybe stressed or anxious or get like guilty is often one that pops up after they've orgasmed or after they've ejaculated um there's a there's kind of seems to be a little bit of difference between what women experience and what men experience um in terms of like that um post-orgasmic sensation or or experience um and like i said it's been very understudied but um but the post-nut 
clarity is again kind of the way it's framed is is quite misogynistic um but the like my kind of take on this would be if there's a um there's there's kind of two things if there's something that's happening after an ejaculation it could be this postcoital tristesse or postcoital dysphoria whatever it's whatever it's called um pcd where they feel closed down and they feel um they feel disconnected and they feel guilty and they feel um some shame or they feel some sort of anxiety uh, after an orgasm and ejaculation and that could be that could be um, pushing them away from their partner. That's definitely something that can happen. Um, I've spoken to a lot of men that after they've ejaculated feel disconnected from their partner. And one, there's plenty of reasons why this could be. One reason that I like to kind of explore and, and just kind of bring awareness to is like the neurotransmitters after an ejaculation. Um, there's a, a, a huge spike in prolactin after an ejaculation, which uh, is responsible for the refractory period. Prolactin has an inverse relationship with dopamine. So when there's high prolactin, there's low dopamine. When we have low dopamine, right, we, we kind of know dopamine as the happy drug, the happy chemical. So we feel a bit shit after an ejaculation. We feel that little bit of disconnection after an ejaculation because we have that, that spike in prolactin, which is about um, satiation and making us feel kind of, um, making us feel inhibited in terms of our sexual desire. We don't need to be sexual afterwards. So so that could be happening, is that disconnect because of that low dopamine, um, so neurotransmitters. Uh, something else that could be happening as well is like, this is a, um, a lot of guys use masturbation and ejaculation kind of um, maybe not so mindfully to release tension, right? They yeah. kind of build up this anticipation, they build up this tension in their body, they build up this frustration right if they haven't ejaculated if, if guys aren't practicing some sort of self-pleasuring on a regular basis or they don't have like a semen retention practice or whatever it might be then they kind of build and build and build this kind of blowing up like a balloon until they need a pop and that that frustration when they ejaculate can kind of be dissipated really quickly um and there's kind of this idea you know, again this hasn't been studied but it's definitely anecdotal of like guys when they're in that kind of like really frustrated uh, sexually annoyed kind of space that they um, and they're kind of aroused but they, they haven't ejaculated yet that they make poor decisions right they kind of uh, the the colloquialism is like they're not thinking with their big head they're thinking with their little head right thinking with their dicks um, is the colloquial expression here so um, and so going from that space of high tension and frustration to like quickly relieving it can have a shift in in their mood can have a shift in in like um yeah in their demeanor as well i suppose so um yeah guys that eat but you know the story that guys are using it and saying like after i after i um had sex with her like i realized that i didn't like her or i realized that you know i the the way that that's framed is is quite like like you pointed out is quite um derogatory and yeah. detrimental and, and misogynistic um but there is some sort of phenomenon happening it doesn't happen for all guys and sometimes it's a positive experience afterwards sometimes it's a, a more negative experience but there is usually something that happens post ejaculation um but the guys that use that as an excuse to be derogatory and misogynistic uh they just i mean they're the guys that i'm trying to reach and talk to I suppose. Yeah. yeah yeah definitely um you also talk about is ejaculation and orgasm the same thing because so i think it's a big misconception so many people think if 
I mean, that's literally just the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're um, they're conflated, right? Orgasm and ejaculation are um, are conflated. People think they are they are one and the same, and oftentimes they're used interchangeably. Ejaculation is used interchangeably the word, with the word orgasm. Um, but we know this. We've studied this. We've we figured this out um, that ejaculation and orgasm are actually two separate physiological processes and ejaculation typically is thought of as being mediated by the central nervous system particularly the sympathetic nervous system through a nerve called the pudendal nerve which is um, runs through the perineum that space in between the genitals and the anus uh, and it's connected to what's called the spinal ejaculation generator or the SEG, which is a cluster of nerves in your lower back, which again is connected to the sympathetic nervous system and it's responsible for um, ejaculation, you know, which can be broken down into two phases, emission and expulsion. Uh, and it kind of like makes sense that it would be mediated by the sympathetic nervous system, which is your stress response, your fight or flight response. People may be familiar with that term. Um, sometimes called a survival response or a survival mechanism because if we look at the history of the human animal we needed to ejaculate in order to survive right we needed to um, and some would say we needed to ejaculate as quickly as possible in order to survive so there's a bit of a school of thought of premature ejaculation actually being a natural function of the male body because it was advantageous to ejaculate as quickly as possible um maybe quicker than the guy who took longer to ejaculate so that you could pass on your genes quicker. So, um, so ejaculation is very much a survival response in the body. It's a, it's a fight or flight response. In fact, there's a couple more Fs um, to the end of that fight or flight response, which is to freeze, to feed and to fornicate or to, if you're a bit more vulgar, to fuck. Uh, and, so, um, and so this idea of ejaculation being... Um, being orgasm is like, yeah, ejaculation can be pleasurable, but it happens almost at the same time as orgasm. If guy, if I get a guy to really tune in to his experience, oftentimes the orgasm happens first and the ejaculation happens just afterwards. Um, so that the intense pleasurable experiences happen and then the ejaculation is just kind of like just slightly after those experiences. And 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 I'm saying I'm not saying ejaculation can't be pleasurable. I'm not saying ejaculation is bad. I'm not saying any of those things which other teachers have said. Um, so I, I feel to be clear on that. Um, and the experience of ejaculating, the experience of expulsion can be pleasurable, but that isn't, that isn't an orgasm. Physiologically, I, I mean, physiologically an orgasm is the contractions of the muscles. That's if you ask a physiologist. If you ask an endocrinologist, an orgasm is the secretion of certain hormones from certain glands into the body. If you ask a cardiologist, they'll tell you an orgasm is, a, is an elevated you know sustained heart rate if you ask a um psychologist they'll tell you that it's a subjective experience of pleasure right so there's actually no standard clinical definition of what an orgasm is which for some people might be like tiring and they're like oh for fuck's sake but for <laughs> for myself i think it's really beautiful that you know and last time i checked there's over 27 different clinical definitions of what an orgasm is and that is really amazing because it's like great look at all this stuff we have to explore like look at all this yeah, amazing incredible that... um possibilities of orgasm that we have rather than it being just an ejaculation it could be this other thing it could be this other thing we could explore this we could do that and so to put it very very simply the way that i differentiate between the two is like i've said ejaculation is sympathetic uh nervous system mediated and an orgasm is parasympathetic nervous system mediated so parasympathetic being your rest and digest response your relaxation response if you will um 
and like you know our sexual experience is this beautiful interplay between those two branches of the the autonomic nervous system um but if we look at like what an ejaculation is in terms of like the physical characteristics of it ejaculation is like i kind of shared before it's tension a lot of guys squeeze and and tense up and even push to try and have this ejaculation their heart rate kind of goes through the roof um, they might even hold their breath or they'll breathe quite shallowly and quite fast uh, they'll te- their temperature will go up and they'll maybe sweat a little bit um, they'll grit their teeth they'll you know if i often say if we took that cluster of characteristics and we you know, took them out of the erotic context and we applied them to a guy walking down the street and all of a sudden we saw him like tense up and squeeze and convulse and you know hold his breath and do all that stuff we would think he was having an anxiety attack right we think he's having a a bit of a panic attack and and so i i like to say ejaculation is a pleasurable panic attack uh, because it has that that really um, strong nerve system or sympathetic nervous system reaction but if we can do or explore or experiment with the opposite of all those things what if we relax as much as possible when we're being sexual either by ourselves or with a partner we slow the breath down and we deepen it into the belly if we um, slow the heart rate down if we just take our time and relax and and try and feel you know as much sensation as possible through the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system then it can totally change the experience that we're having and it's often a very easy strategy uh, to, to help overcome premature ejaculation if you just slow your body right down. Um, orgasm then, again, can be kind of whatever you want it to, you know, to, to be. But one of the ways of helping to reframe this is like instead of orgasm being this peak experience on a graph, like an ejaculation is just a five-second sticky white crotch sneeze. If, yeah. if instead, of ejac- instead of orgasm and ejaculation being the same thing, this kind of peak transitory experience at the top of a graph... If instead we reframe orgasm to a state, like an orgasmic range, so on that same graph, if orgasm is like everything that happens in between this range of the graph, and we can we can kind of have like you know a more intense orgasm, which goes down to a little bit less intense orgasm, and everything within that state being orgasmic rather than orgasm being this one singular event, um, then it opens up a world of possibilities to be like, okay, now that I'm on a, you know, I often use the the edging scale of like you know zero to ten if ten out of ten is an ejaculation can you play around with like what it feels to be at like a nine or a 9.5 and can you maintain that for like 20 minutes how does it feel to be at that like precipice that edge of of ejaculation in that orgasmic state for 20 minutes half an hour an hour um you know get familiar with that high state of arousal that high state of orgasm i suppose um when you're with yourself and then you can learn to explore that with your partner so yeah just differentiating between the two can be really helpful and and oftentimes a bit of a light bulb moment for a lot of guys when they learn that they're actually two separate experiences because then you can learn how to have an orgasm without an ejaculation Uh, similarly you can have an ejaculation without an orgasm um, and once you start learning how to separate the two then you can have two orgasms without an ejaculation and then three orgasms and and four and five and you can become this multi-orgasmic man or multi-orgasmic person uh which is in full control uh, over their ejaculation they can choose when they want to ejaculate they might have sex and decide not to ejaculate this is kind of like the uh i like to say the unspoken symbolism of an, of an ejaculation oftentimes yeah. and I, I alluded to this before in a heterosexual experience if the person with the penis ejaculates sex is over for a lot of the you know for a lot of people um 
and that's kind of like no no one's no one says that but it's just like the the mentality that we have um so if you have sex and here's a, i guess some a suggestion or some encouragement for people that are in heterosexual relationships is have sex with the intention of not ejaculating so like go into that sexual experience and say hey today we're just gonna we're gonna have sex and we're gonna you know be sexual with one another but i'm just gonna not ejaculate and when you take ejaculation off the table and you're not kind of driving towards it and you're actively you know trying to not ejaculate and trying to avoid that ejaculation you kind of start to go fuck what else is there (laughs) what else do we do um you know if we're not trying to driving towards this end goal what can we make this experience about and and that helps kind of see what else there is on the table i suppose there's you know we can when, and when do we finish when when do we stop having sex uh you know it starts to bring up all these stories of like oh man we've been really trapped in this dogmatic way of this is what sex should look like it, it has to finish when there's an ejaculation yada 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 um so it's a really uh, neat way of just kind of experimenting with those stories and mindfully bringing them up so that you can challenge them and, and rewrite them for yourself yeah, that's awesome. I can see how that would really open up just everyone's sexual experiences, especially if they're with men, just seeing it from a different, seeing it how it really is, I suppose, and then being able to work on that themselves. So as a woman and other females, um, appro- I suppose approaching conversations with sex like about sex with men can be quite um, intimidating, especially when there's these expectations about how sex should look like. Do you have any tips on how women can approach a conversation with their male sexual partners when they want to explore things like out of pen- outside of just penetration? Yeah. So this is a, I mean, this is a great question and I'm, I'm glad you asked it because it like, it's all well and good to talk about all this stuff, but if we don't have any practical advice for how we can actually approach these conversations, then it becomes a bit, um, it kind of falls on deaf ears a little bit. So some suggestions that I have after I've worked with men and, and I've worked with women um, with regards to this is, and, and so I'm just keep this as practical as possible, is firstly, have conversations in what I call low stakes situations. So one of the worst times to start a conversation, and this is just a sweeping generalization, but hopefully it lands for people. One of the worst times to have a conversation is just before you're about to have sex or just as you're starting to have sex. Like it's a terrible time to to have a conversation about opening things up and trying new things and, and stuff like that. What you, what I suggest you do is pre-frame all that and preface all that and have those conversations in like a low pressure situation and a low stakes where it, where it's non-threatening, it's not intimidating uh, and you're starting to like normalize just regular conversations about sex. So it could be over breakfast. It could be when you're having a cup of coffee. It could be um, something that's very helpful for um, talking to guys is when you're doing something physical together, like going for a walk or, um, you know, before my partner and I had a baby, we used to kick a soccer ball around and that would be a really helpful time for me to have a conversation because I was I was focusing on the physical activity that I was doing and my, I wasn't allowing my mind to to get in the way of what I wanted to share um, so that's something going for a drive with your partner just doing something physical with them can be a very 
practical, helpful way of like getting them out of their head and into their body and just allowing them to, to talk in a non-threatening situation in, in that kind of non-low um, stakes, I suppose, is the word that I use. Uh, that, so that's the first piece of advice is like have those conversations and normalize them, have them regularly. Uh, it doesn't have to be this one huge, massive conversation and then you never have a conversation again. Just have little conversation regularly. Uh, and then something else that I, I like to share is, and this is easier said than done, is try not to try not to have expectations about what he's going to say so we we do this as as human beings in general we ask a question and we already have in our mind when we ask that question the expected answer for what we want right we have like if our partner doesn't answer that particular way we'll get upset at them right even though we were the ones that asked them the question um when they share and they and you know and they you know graciously you know open up and they share about you know what you've just asked them we then get upset at them for for sharing that is a surefire way of shutting down particularly men right if 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 all of a sudden he's opened up which can be quite difficult for a lot of guys and he shared something and that wasn't what you were expecting you know maybe he shared something that kind of caught you off guard and you attack him for that you you um you belittle him or 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 shame him for what he's just shared he's going to have a lot more difficulty the next time you ask him a question, opening up and sharing again. So like I said, easier said than done because we do this as human beings all the time, but trying to spend a bit of that expectation and judgment about what he's about to share and, and just kind of let it hang there, let him share it and just let it hang there. And something that can be helpful is giving him an extra amount of time for his sharing as well, right? Very often I see this in couples because uh, heterosexual couples like a lot of women are kind of craving some sort of vulnerability, some sort of expression from their partner. They want their partner to open up. The second that he does open up, the the, the women kind of pounce on that, like, oh, finally, thank God. And they kind of ask him some more questions and kind of jump in there and like really are enthusiastic about it. And that kind of throws him back a little bit and, and he gets caught, kind of caught off guard and, um, and a bit overwhelmed. So as much as it's amazing to kind of have that intimacy and that vulnerability, something that can be really helpful is taking a breath and giving like 30 seconds, kind of the 30 second rule here is like, if he shares something and he says, yep, this, this, and this, instead of then jumping straight onto that and asking more questions and kind of keep on trying to go down the rabbit hole, take 30 seconds and just sit, just breathe for 30 seconds with him, right? And it can be scary because like, oh my God, I don't want this to end. But giving him that 30 seconds is a really beautiful analogy here from Alison Armstrong of it gives him an opportunity to throw another bucket down the well. So you've asked him a question, he throws a bucket down, he pulls it up, he tips that bucket out. And if you give him that opportunity, he might send that next bucket down and he might go a little bit deeper this time and share something that's a little bit more profound for him um, because you've been giving him that space. And this is kind of like one way of quote unquote holding space for for your partner or holding space for someone is literally giving them the space and time to kind of process more of what's coming up for them and then sharing. So that's another just simple little trick, that 30 second rule. Um, yeah, I guess that's kind of like just some real practical things. There's a, a really fantastic resource online called the yes, no, maybe so game or activity. Yeah. And um, you, can, you can Google it, you can download it uh, and it can be really helpful for sparking conversations because sometimes there can be a bit of like fear around like oh god what do i ask what do i talk about what conversation like how like what what are some things that we need to discuss so a game like or an activity like the yes no maybe so exercise which is 
it's simply just a PDF list of sexual activities. And you indicate whether you're a yes to doing that sexual activity, whether you're a no, or whether you're a maybe. Like in the right circumstances, when you're in the mood, you could maybe be into it. So it, it, it allows you to kind of lean on that rather than have to think about all the things that you need to talk about. You can sit down and you can have a glass of wine or a beer or a coffee or a cup of tea together. Again, in this playful kind of low stakes situation and be like, hey, I, I saw this thing on the internet, thought it'd be really fun. We could have a bit of you know, a laugh with it and let's just go through it and, and have a conversation and, and just kind of like do this game together. So it's again, framed as this non-threatening, um, you know, fun, playful thing to do. A- again, not right before you have sex, but like in, a, yeah. in that low stakes situation. Um, and again, keeping things like, I suppose the, the way I think about this is like keeping things framed positively as much as possible. So something that can be unhelpful is like saying our sex life is shit. Like you're terrible in bed. We need to have a conversation about it. Right. That even just saying that brings up heaps of anxiety in me. And I'm like, Oh my yeah. God, like I've been like, or this whole, this whole time I've been, you know, so terrible. So, so keeping things framed as positively as possible. Obviously, if the sex is shit um, or you're you know, experiencing pain, like you need to be upfront about that. But yeah. it can be helpful to kind of cushion that by saying, hey, I really enjoy this relationship. I think like we're, you know, I think that we're really right for one another or like the sex that we're having is, is good. I think we could have better sex. Like I, I, you know, I'm open to exploring more pleasure with you. I, I really you know, connect with you. And, and so that just lands differently to saying you're shit in bed. We need to have a conversation yeah, definitely. about it. Um, so keeping things like pleasure and, and positively framed, pleasure oriented and positively framed, like, Hey, I want to experience more pleasure. I think you and I could experience more pleasure together and framing pleasure as the, the focus here and not like you need to learn a new skill because I'm not experiencing enough satisfaction or, or something like that. So just little tweaks like that can be helpful for initiating and making your partner a bit more receptive to the conversations. Yeah, that's awesome. We're so often told to like communicate, you need to communicate more, do this and that, but we're never told how to actually communicate about those like issues. So it's really good to hear that because I know myself, I probably wouldn't have thought of those things because it's always in the back of my head, I need to communicate more. You know, if I want the best sexual relationship, (laughs) I'm just going to communicate. But if you don't do it properly or in a way that best suits the relationship and then I can see how it just turns to shit. <laughs> yeah, totally. You're, you're 100% right. Like communication is key, obviously, but it's like, well, what type of communication is key? Um, yeah. And there's there's an, an amazing resource, um, the five love languages. Like yeah. it's just a fantastic, easy thing to do to figure out like how your partner communicates in terms of their relationship and, and like how they experience love and what, what makes them feel loved as well. Similarly for you. Um, so that can be a really helpful thing. There's also like the sexual version of that called the erotic blueprints by um, Jaya, I believe her name is. And it's yeah. essentially the same thing. It's like exactly the same as the five lang- love languages, but it's like sexually, like what's your erotic blueprint? Are you do you experience pleasure this way or this way? And you know, how do you give pleasure and things like that? So just doing those things can be really helpful for inspiring you to, to communicate in a certain way with your partner based on what you know about how they receive love and eroticism. So um, definitely check those out. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. 
well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about these issues with me. It's been absolutely amazing. I know I've, I've learned so much. You're so full of knowledge. Every question, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> um, so thank you I, so much. I tend much. to ramble, so I appreciate that. Thanks for letting me just no, go. No, it's good. I, I find it so fascinating and I'm sure so many other people will because I don't I don't know if it's just because I'm like a woman and I seek information that um obviously relates to me I just you never hear these things so it's so awesome to be able to sit down with you and talk about it yeah I appreciate you having me on and and thank you for using your platform to have these conversations it's really important and I I really appreciate it I just want to say a massive thank you to Cam again that was an absolutely amazing episode it was so informative I don't know about the rest of you shaggers but I know I learned so much So thank you. And now to you, Shaggers. Thank you so much. This past six months has been absolutely amazing. I cannot believe that I've made it this far and I'm having guests like Cam Fraser on. It's just absolutely amazing. So thank you. And as I said at the start of the episode, please go and follow my Instagram to keep up to date for when I am coming back. Because trust me, I'll be coming back bigger and better than ever and I'm so fucking excited for what the next chapter will bring for now if you haven't listened to all my episodes please go back listen to them re-listen to your favorite ones and as I said check out my Instagram because I'm constantly posting content there so thank you shaggers you've been amazing and I will see you when I'm back (laughs) 